Hello, once again, welcome into another episode of the Lion's Edge Podcast. I'm your host, Chase Kitty, solo podcast today. Uh, Andrew is out, he's taking a little bit of leave. He and his wife and his kids, they have successfully moved to Colorado. So that's what he's doing this week. I am not envious of that cross-country road trip that he and his family took. I'm sure we'll get more on the details of that next week when we get back to a little bit more of a regular schedule. Andrew will be back. We'll be hitting the topics, giving out picks, the usual, the usual type of stuff you expect uh, every week from this podcast. But given that today is a solo adventure, you're, you're just you're, you're shotgun with me along for the ride for this one. I wanted to do something that has been heavily requested, teased it on social. Uh, we've, we've gotten probably as many requests for this episode as we have for any single thing we've ever done. And that is tennis. Just explaining how I bet tennis. Everything from the basics of what to look for all the way up to the more advanced stuff. So I, I have a shitload of notes here. I have prepped for days on how to do this podcast just to get everything right. I am holding nothing back, all right? I am keeping no secrets for myself. This is my entire process. I'm giving you the whole thing. You know, tennis is a fun sport to bet. It's 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 serious, but there there is there is a fun side to it. If you listen to the show a lot, uh, you probably know that. Uh, in a way, ten, betting on tennis is kind of silly. On the podcast, we get to see things like Let's go to Qatar, where Chase is betting $200 on a Tunisian woman you've never heard of. Uh, so there, there is sort of a whimsical, international, random element to this sport that you might not necessarily get with the NFL or, you know, college football, where, you know, there's a fixed number of teams. The NFL is 32 teams. We know all the quarterbacks. We know the major players. We know the stars. So that there's a finite level of detail usually in, in the way we talk about those sports. Tennis is totally different. Um, but there's also a lot more substance here that we usually don't get into. You know, oftentimes, you know, maybe every week or every other week, I give you a tennis pick uh, from some random tournament and it usually hits and we don't really get into it much more than that. Uh, it's it's just, I give the pick, it cashes. I get two DMs later in the week of, hey, I, I see Chase, better random tennis player I've never heard of and I tail him and that's the end of that. So, this episode is going to get into the substance behind that process that we so rarely talk about. And, and I think the, the cool thing here is that it is pretty recreatable at home. I don't have some special tennis analysis ability. You know, I am not doing something that only I can do. I have, you know, used my you know, my intellect and my understanding of the sport to build this kind of system. And, and I, I wonder how many people would be able to do that the way I've done it. But all you need is the instruction manual and you can do this at home. So that's what this episode is. It is how to effectively bet tennis and make money on it. I'm going to start with the very, very basics. I For, for people that are, I, I don't know who, I mean, it's possible that people are listening to this episode that barely don't really even understand the sport of tennis. In 60 seconds or less, I'm going to explain tennis because it, it looks maybe more complicated than it actually is, especially the scoring. I know the scoring can get kind of intimidating. It's a very simple sport, okay? 
The entire sport in 60 seconds is this. The basic unit in the sport is a game. A game is played to four points. We dress it up with weird numbers that don't really make any sense, but it is essentially a game to four points. One, two, three, game. Now in tennis, we don't call it that. We call it 15, 30, 40 game, but it's one, two, three game, okay? And you have to win by two. So if I've scored three points, and if you've scored three points, we are now locked in this tiebreak system called deuce, where one of us has to get two points up on the other person to win. Other than that, it's a game to four. Games don't take very long. Uh, They're usually about three or four minutes, unless they go to deuce. And then maybe it's five or six minutes. Maybe it's 20 or 25 minutes. It just goes until somebody wins by two. Winning a game is not that big of a deal. It is the basic building block of tennis. In professional tennis, you need to win six games to win a set. And if you can win a set, now you've really done something worth talking about. Naturally, to win a set, you have to win by two games. That is sort of the thing in tennis. So if you're beating your opponent five games to three, and then you win another game, you have won that set six games to three. But... If you are tied five games to five and you win a game, you are now leading 6-5, but you haven't won that set because you have to win by two. You need to win another game. Most tennis matches are best of three sets. So you win six games and that wins you one set. Then you win another set and you've won the match. And that's pretty much it. That's tennis. It's, that's pretty much all it is. It's not that complicated. There's a lot of other nuances. There's a lot of, uh, there's, you know, there's drop shots. There's challenging the baseline. There's painting the corners. It's like any other sport. There's a lot of vocabulary. There's a lot of in-game strategic window dressing. Uh, but in my experience, understanding those topics are much more important to playing tennis than it actually is to betting on tennis. Betting on tennis You know, you don't really need to understand every last strategic corner of the sport. The same way that, you know, in basketball, you don't need to know the difference between, you know, a pocket pass and a bounce pass to bet on a playoff game. If you're a longtime podcast listener, you likely already know that I have a background in tennis. I've played tennis for about 20 years. Um, I was an athletic kid. I was a nerd with good genes, basically. Uh, My mom would throw on Wimbledon and the French Open finals during the summer, and and, and we would watch them. And I never really knew all that much about what was going on, but I didn't think it looked like a really easy sport to play, or or at least something that I would be good at. My mom, I think, perhaps, uh, she probably wanted to humble me a little bit, uh, if we're being honest. Uh, she, She bought me a racket. She took me to the local park to teach me how to play and keep score. And after a few outings, a few weeks later, uh, it turns out I was right. I had some natural tennis talent. Um, And and so that's kind of how I got on this path. I played for two fairly successful high school programs here in Central Virginia. I was never, you know, a top player or anything like that. Uh, I started way too late in life, and my family never really had the money for private coaches or tennis clubs. Uh, Basically a prerequisite for for being a high-end tennis player uh, anywhere in like the greater Richmond area and a lot of uh, a lot of bigger city areas are, are kind of the same. It is a money sport. 
I was playing against guys named like Tanner and Grayson that had practically been given rackets in their crib. They were a lot better than me. Um, so I was never going to go on tour, but I did ride on a lot of team trips and much to my shame, play a lot of games at the University of Richmond's campus, uh, which I would grow to regret later in life. I didn't know it at the time, but I was kind of fulfilling this classic trope of the bench player who goes on to become a media member. And this is especially true, I think, in gambling media and and a lot of professional bettors. There are a lot of professional gamblers who were third-string point guards and, you know, weak-side linebackers, if you know what I mean. They're just like, you, you know a sport enough to know it more than other people that never played it, but you were never good enough to be a high-level athlete. And, and I think a lot of times those people turn out to be media members and, and at times even gam- uh, professional gamblers. Now, I give you all this personal background for a specific reason. I, I want this next part to really make sense. When I first started betting on tennis, which was about five or six years ago, I had a similar approach to a lot of novice tennis bettors, I think, which was, hey, it's June and there's no other sports to bet on. So I wonder if I could bet on tennis. That approach gets a lot of people in trouble, and I'll get into that a little bit later. But for now, let's stick with me. I, I, I understood tennis more than the average person. I knew most of the top 20 players. I knew their names. I knew their habits. I understood the difference between clay and hard court. I could tell who was playing well and who wasn't. I should have been good at this, right? Like everything about my profile, my background says I should be good at betting tennis. The same way a college football player might graduate and have an edge over you and me betting on college football. They understand the game. I've been on tennis for about four months, and I was okay. I stuck to the favorites. I stuck to guys who were playing with good form or playing well that particular stretch of the season. I had made maybe a few hundred dollars, roughly, uh, but then I lost virtually all of it on a big favorite who got upset early in a tournament, and I decided to hang it up for the year. College football was around the corner. I didn't really need to keep betting on tennis. Um, it, it had fulfilled the need that I wanted it to, which was, at the time, uh, something that I could bet on while I'm waiting for other stuff to happen. That's an experience that I think a lot of bettors probably have. Tennis is a sport with a lot of names and a lot of noise. And so public bettors tend to stick to a few guys who they're familiar with. Uh, You might bet on Nadal in the French Open or Djokovic at the U.S. Open. Other guys who are in that next tier, top 20 players that maybe you've heard of if you're sort of casually familiar with tennis. Uh, Daniel Medvedev, uh, Tsitsipas, Stefano Tsitsipas, uh, Alexander Zverev, Andre Rublev, Kaspar Ruud. I think Taylor Fritz is is the highest-ranked American player right now. Uh, These are top 20 names that casual tennis fans might recognize and bet every once in a while. Uh, and I mentioned something just now that is central to tennis betting, okay? It's, it's absolutely critical, and that is the rankings. I'm going to spend a lot of time here in a second talking about the rankings and how they matter and why they matter. Whether you're on the men's side or the women's side, every player has a ranking. And that makes it a little different than other sports. In the NFL, there are no rankings of teams. You might know a writer who puts together a power ranking for ESPN. Uh, Maybe you follow our blog at BetMGM, The Roar, and and we do some content like that there. Uh, But 
it's just content. You know, it, it's one person's opinion about, you know, what's the thing with power rankings? Who's hot? That's not a true ranking. Even in college football and college basketball, there is a poll, but it's subjective. Even the official college football playoff rankings, they are aggregated rankings of one small group of people arguing in a room until they come to a consensus. Tennis is different. It has a true ranking system. It's it's like chess or other games of skill or strategy. When you play an event, you score points. And depending on the details of that event, uh, especially like how big the tournament is, who you played against, how far you played, you score a certain amount of points based on your outcomes. And the more points you have, the higher your ranking. And those rankings are constantly changing. They're constantly being adjusted up or adjusted down based on what you've done. So if you're an inexperienced tennis better and you discover the ATP rankings or the WTA rankings, ATP is the men's side of tennis, WTA is the women's side of tennis. You discover these rankings, they are your absolute worst enemy. Because better, most betters are going to do what's logical in this situation. In a sport where a clear mathematical formula ranks the players, they're going to bet the higher ranked player. That's just what people do. And that is, I cannot underscore this enough, that is a catastrophic mistake to just blindly bet higher ranked players. I totally understand why it happens. It is a natural way of thinking. But tennis is too complex to reduce it to just picking between two rankings. There are way more important elements that we're going to get into later. But for now, understand this. The ATP rankings, which are put out by professional tennis, not the sports book. Important distinction. They are so detrimental to betters, these rankings, that tennis is routinely One of the sports book's most profitable sports. Tennis. I'm going to say that again. Tennis is one of the sports book's most profitable sports. Which for a lot of American bettors is kind of shocking. Because a lot of Americans don't even think about tennis. Right? Here in America, we're betting on football. Maybe a little bit of college basketball in March. You hit the NBA playoffs a little bit around this time. Some random baseball through the summer. Tennis doesn't even enter your brain for, like, I don't even know how many bettors. It is a huge percentage of bettors that have probably never placed a tennis bet in their entire life. And yet, tennis remains a great product for the sportsbook. And in my opinion, it is almost entirely because of the rankings. They are such a huge psychological deterrent to new tennis bettors that it creates a massive disadvantage. You just, unless you really understand the sport, you are sucked into this gravitational pull of betting on the rankings rather than betting on the players. But there is good news, okay? The good news is there's almost always a yang to the yin. There's almost always a strength that you can turn into a weakness. There's almost always a way you can take a sportsbook advantage and make it your advantage. And in the case of tennis, if you understand how to use the rankings as markers, then the rankings become a huge asset to you, just not necessarily in a way that's logical to the average better. So I'll give you a perfect example. Right now, I'm recording this Wednesday morning, there's a big tournament happening in Rome. It's the last big tournament before the French Open that starts at the end of May. 
And so lots of people will go to BetMGM Sportsbook. They'll see that there's an American named Jensen Brooksby who's playing a Belgian guy named David Goffin today. Now, the ones who are looking to bet tennis will do five or ten minutes of research. They will see that Brooksby, the American, he's ranked 38th. And the Belgian, David Goffin, he's ranked 48th. So it's time to bet on Jensen Brooksby, right? He's ranked 38th. Goffin's ranked 48th. Brooksby's got to be the bet. And that's what a lot of bettors will do without really knowing any other substantive information, without even knowing what substantive tennis information would be, what it would look like. They will lay down $20 on Jensen Brooksby to win. And I mean, how could you not? The guy's plus 210 to win. My $20 wins $42, and I'm betting on an American. What a great bet, right? Like, and that's, that's sort of the thought process. But here's the real question to ask. And, and I don't know what's going to happen with this, with this Brooksby-Goffin game. I, I have no idea. But here's the real question that you should ask. It is the key to making a killing on betting tennis. Okay, Brooksby, as I said, he's, he's the dog here. He's a plus 210 to win. The Belgian player, David Goffin, he's the favorite. He's minus 275. So the question I would ask is, why is lower-ranked David Goffin the favorite in this match? Why is the higher-ranked player the underdog? Why is that like that? You shouldn't just automatically bet on the higher-ranked guy. If anything in this scenario, you should think about betting on the lower-ranked guy. Because why is the lower-ranked guy the favorite? That's a little weird. We talk on this podcast, we talk on the Lion's Edge all the time about the marketplace. The marketplace and marketplace factors and the marketplace, 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 right? Yes, novice tennis bettors are complete slaves to the ranking numbers. But the truth is that sports books are a little shackled by them too. When you have outright rankings of players in most cases, the higher ranked player is going to be some kind of favorite. That's just how marketplaces work. I mean, the higher ranked player is going to attract more betting attention. Everyone understands that. So the higher ranked player will usually be the favorite. It's just a matter of how big of a favorite they're going to be. Are they going to be a minus 150 favorite where it's kind of modest and you're like, hmm, okay, they're they're not much of a favorite there at all. Is it going to be minus 300? Like, okay, pretty sizable favorite, pretty comfortable favorite. They're probably going to win. Or... If you're talking about a, one of the you know real great players right now, somebody that's really playing well, maybe they're minus 600 or minus 800 or minus 1200, you know, and that's when you're really looking at it would be a big upset for this guy to lose. Like that's that's when you you feel pretty confident about what the outcome's going to be. It's just a matter of how you're going to get there. But a few times every week, if you pay attention and if you look at all the odds for all the tournaments, a few times a week you might notice there are a few matches where the sportsbook will hang the lower-ranked player as the favorite. That is a huge signal on which side to bet on, okay? Because as we've said, sportsbook is a little hindered by the marketplace. In most cases, they need to hang the the higher-ranked player as the favorite. But a lower-ranked player who is priced as the favorite wins an overwhelming amount of the time. This is my first big secret in handicapping tennis, search for lower ranked favorites. Because if the sports book, constrained by the market, hangs a lower seeded player, a lower ranked player, as the favorite in spite of the marketplace factors that are betting on it, it's a huge signal to sharp tennis bettors like me 
which side I need to bet on. This is the tennis equivalent of something we see in college football too. And if you're an advantage better, you'll know exactly the kind of scenario I'm describing. Uh, let's say that the Texas Longhorns are ranked number 19 in the AP poll, and they're going to play a road game at Kansas State. Kansas State is unranked, but they're a four-point favorite. Texas is a four-point dog, ranked but on the road. Who are you taking in that scenario? If you listen to this podcast, you know that 10 times out of 10, I am on unranked favorite Kansas State. Squares bet Texas State in that scenario. Sharps bet Kansas State. That's just how it is. And that's that Kansas State side, I'm telling you, it's a, they cover a preposterous amount of the time. Unranked favorites playing against ranked dogs. It's one of those things, if you're a smart handicapper, you're just, you're just aware of it. The betting market is usually smarter than the polls, than the rankings. That is a sharp scenario. And it's, it's very similar to the tennis situation I'm describing. David Goffin, the Belgian player I was describing, he is a lower-ranked favorite today. And Jensen Brooksby is a higher-ranked dog. That right there, usually enough for me. I've done this enough times. I know that I can blind bet these scenarios. I'm going to be right about eight times out of ten. Two, two, maybe three times out of ten, something weird's going to happen. Somebody's going to get hurt. Somebody's going to retire. Somebody's going to blow a big lead. But most of the time, you see a a lower-ranked favorite you should be betting that lower-ranked favorite. For the sake of understanding more about the mechanics of betting on tennis, I'm going to get more into this, this one specific Romo match uh, between Jensen Brooksby and David Goffin. I'm going to try to do my best to explain why I think Goffin in particular in this situation is the favorite. Uh, the answer lies in the building blocks of tennis analysis, which is form and court. If you're an American... And if you're listening to this podcast, there's a decent chance you're an American. I would like you to picture a tennis court. Any tennis court that you have ever seen with your own eyes in real life. Maybe at your high school, maybe at a park in your neighborhood, literally anywhere. Okay, What you are imagining right now is called hard court. Almost definitely. Unless you're like an actual professional tennis player. In which case, hey, thanks for listening. Uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button. You listen to Andrew and I. Break down sports and betting landscapes every week while you're jet-setting all over the world to play tennis. I envy you. For the rest of us who are Americans and not professional tennis players, we are pretty much exclusively exposed to hardcore in this country. And there's a reason for that. It is the standard Goldilocks kind of court, okay? It's, it's not as slow as clay, which is mostly popular in continental Europe, especially Western Europe, Central Europe. Uh, it's also not as fast as grass, which is popular basically nowhere except for Wimbledon and a couple of other British cottage clubs, I guess. And not every hard court is the same. There are, there are different nuances, uh, depending on what's layered underneath of it, how it's built. But as a general rule, clay is slower than hard court. Hard court's slower than grass, okay? So file that away to memory because that's important. Three main styles of court. Different players are good on different styles of court. And, and while we're at it, let's, let's also do like an overgeneralized summary of the season. The tennis season starts in January, uh, just bright and early, right? Right out of the gate, new year, new tennis season. Basically, everybody goes to Australia in January because it's the summer there while it's cold everywhere else. 
and they play in the first major tournament of the year. It's the Australian Open. There's also a couple of other smaller tournaments that take place there too. But mainly, you're looking at the Australian Open to start the year. Uh, After that, there's about two more months of hardcourt tournaments, many of them taking place here in the United States. There's a big tournament in California. There's another really big one in Miami. In April, the tour starts to shift toward clay and toward Europe. And obviously, that's where we are right now. There's a big tournament in Madrid. There's a big tournament in Italy. There's a tournament in Monte Carlo. All of these sort of peak with the French Open here in a couple of weeks. In mid-June, we have about three to four weeks of grass. And that's where we hit the grass zenith at Wimbledon. It's sort of the apex of the season. A lot of players take a little break after that. Many of them have been playing like six straight months of tennis. They're tired. They want a little summer break. So after that, we kind of go back to hard court, but the season gets a little bit weirder after that. So yes, there's some hard court. The U.S. Open's in September. That is a hard court tournament, just like the Australian Open. But there's all these other weirder tournaments peppered in there too. Uh, There's random like clay tournaments in China and it's just kind of all over the place. There's indoor hardcourt tournaments as the weather gets bad. And then there's the ATP final in November, which sounds like a much bigger deal than it actually is. It's less of a true championship and more of a kind of a fireworks show with all the best players at the end of the season. And, and that's that's just kind of a general overview. There are funky pockets mixed in throughout that I didn't really touch on, but just in general, it's hardcourt, clay, grass more hardcore, you know, there's, you know, for instance, there's, there's a small, like, month-long clay swing through South America in the late winter, and that's, you know, for, it's, it's gaining popularity, actually, it's, it's for players, I guess, that want to get an early start on that clay swing that goes through the spring, there's just all these little funky, smaller tournaments all over the place, Acapulco, and on the women's side, there are a couple of major tournaments in the Middle East, it's just, it's kind of all over the place and there's lots of interesting spots, but as a general description, that's what the, that's what the season looks like. And like I said, it's 11 months long. So if you get good at betting on tennis, you kind of always have something that you can find to bet on. So it is worth getting halfway good at this. Let's circle back to David Goffin, who has been waiting very patiently for me to explain why he's going to beat Jensen Brooksby probably on Wednesday. Uh, Goffin is 31. He's a little bit older, but he's not necessarily old. He's got about 15 years on tour. Many of those have featured strong clay seasons. Uh, he was 39 and 16 in clay matches in 2010, 28 and 5 in clay matches in 2014, 12 and 5 on clay in 2018, and now this year he's 12 and 3 in clay matches. He is one of the best clay players on tour right now, and that's important. Lots of players especially Eastern Europeans and Americans, and Jensen Brooksby, remember, is an American, they play really well in January and February and March, but their momentum doesn't necessarily translate when they switch from hardcourt tournaments to European clay. This year, the exact opposite is kind of true for Goffin. He had a lousy clay, uh, he had a lousy hardcourt season. He was 5-8 and eight during the hardcourt opening part of the year. But now, as I said, 12 wins, 3 losses on clay. This is called form. It's something we kind of reference in other sports, maybe baseball or football, but it's really a tennis word. Unlike football, where a team has a roster, 
and different players might swap in or out uh, based on injury or strategy or effectiveness. Tennis is just one player. You know, David Goffin is the only player involved when you're betting on David Goffin. So it's all about him. And you're going to have ebbs and flows over a long career. Sometimes you're distracted. Sometimes you're really motivated. Sometimes you're, you're trying to fight off an injury, but you're still healthy enough to play, but you're not playing very well. It's, it's just ebbs and flows to a player. When they're playing well, they're said to have good form. When they're playing like shit, they're said to have bad form. Uh, when somebody's really playing their best game, when they have good form, ideally you could identify that and then bet it before the marketplace catches up and prices a player out. The marketplace, I would say, based on the fact that David Goffin is a minus 275 favorite in this match, I think the marketplace understands that David Goffin is in pretty good form right now. And sometimes, like in Goffin's case, good form might accompany a court change. He's a pretty solid all-around player, but a lot of players, especially like these random Italian guys, they are court specialists. In other words... Uh, they, they aren't very good for like nine months out of the year. Maybe they're like a 500 player, maybe an under 500 player, but they're really good on one specific court. And so we get to clay season, like with these, with the Italians, we get to clay season and they come out and this is the peak of their career. This is where they're at their best. These two and a half months of European clay. And, and this kind of ties back into what I was talking about with lower ranked favorites, even If you see a guy who's ranked 127th and he's the favorite in Madrid over some guy ranked in the top 50, that could be one of these scenarios where it's a clay specialist who is playing a more established tour guy. Same rules apply. If he is a lower ranked favorite, there is probably a reason for that. And you should lean into that. So, Goffin is 12-3 on clay this year. He took Nadal to a third set in Madrid last week. Very impressive. He made it to the third round in Monte Carlo, which is a big clay tournament. He won a smaller tour tournament in Morocco in April that featured some really good players, Alex Molkin, Frederico Coria. I think he actually beat four top 80 players in that tournament draw, many of whom are solid clay guys. All of these are signals that suggests Goffin is playing very good tennis right now. So good on clay, good on surface, good form right now. Now let's look at Jensen Brooksby, who is the quote-unquote better player because of his ranking. That's not really how you should look at rankings, but that's how the marketplace often does. Brooksby had a decent hardcourt season going 6-3. and three. I actually think I bet on him at Indian Wells like two months ago. So a big hardcourt tournament in California. I think he won. Since the season flipped to clay, totally different story. Okay, Prior to this tournament in Rome, he had played two clay matches. Remember, Goffin's played 15, and he's 12-3. and three. Brooksby was 0-2. He played two, he lost both. His first clay win came in the first round of this tournament in Rome earlier this week, and that guy was ranked 150th. So not exactly a guy on his level or David Goffin's level. So when we look into the details here, we can see why the trading team at BetMGM has priced Goffin as the favorite. He is definitely accustomed to the clay right now, He's playing well. You can't say either of those things about Brooksby right now. Let's really hone in on what my strategy is because it's simple and you can recreate it. Lots of so-called tennis specialists use heavy tennis analysis 
talking about unforced errors, mental matchups, how one player's return game counters a big serve, or how this player will force that player to use his underdeveloped backhand by forcing him to his left. It's the same as football experts who are relying on actual roster analysis or strategic understanding of the game to make handicaps. And if you're really, really smart, and you want to spend 40 or 50 hours breaking down film a week, and you are a brilliant professional gambler, there are probably a few of those people who can win money from the sports book doing that. I'm not saying it's impossible. There are probably a few professional tennis gamblers who study matchups and strategies and they beat the book that way. Good for them. More power to them. That's not what I do. That's probably not what you're going to do, right? I don't see you devoting 5,000 hours to becoming a master tennis better. That's just not what most people want to do, have the time to do. Like Nobody's listening to this podcast thinking about quitting their job to become a professional tennis gambler. I am not suggesting you do that. I'm not doing that. What I am doing is using the marketplace to my advantage, right? I am a marketplace gambler. We talk about this all the time. The book sets the prices for each match, and I look for weird numbers. Why is David Goffin a lower-ranked favorite? Hmm, that's interesting. And then I follow my curiosity until I find the answer, and usually that leads to a bet. I understand tennis, I can analyze it when necessary, but I'm not relying on that. I am essentially using the sportsbooks trading team, the guys that set the prices, as my spotter. And then I follow up on weird numbers. That's why I bet David Goffin today. That's why I just spent 20 minutes breaking it down uh, and explaining why I think David Goffin is the right side. And of course, now that I've done that, he's totally going to lose some weird match to uh, to Jensen Brooksby. But regardless, like this is the sort of play you want to look for, okay? To, to say this another way, to revisit a phrase we often say on the podcast, I'm not betting on a team, I'm betting the number, okay? Or in this case, in the case of tennis, I'm not betting on a player, I'm betting the number. It's about the number. It's always about the number. I'm using the number itself as the chief signal on whether or not I should pay attention to a game. So a lot of times, if I'm going through the the sportsbook page and looking at the tennis odds, and I see somebody is a minus 500 favorite, and a and the other side is a plus 375 dog, I might not look twice at that. It might be a great bet. It might be a terrible bet. I don't know, but I don't necessarily see some kind of angle at minus 500 or, or plus 375. I think where I usually see angles are unusual favorites or big-time players that are much smaller favorites than I would expect. Last week uh, at a tournament in Madrid, I saw that Nadal playing on clay in his home tournament in Spain, he was like a minus 130 favorite. And I was like, hmm, that's weird. That's the exact kind of thing I'm talking about. Nadal is pretty much always going to be a favorite, right? He's so and and it usually a huge favorite. And on clay in Spain, a massive favorite, right? Because think about all the people that want to bet him. So when you see Nadal at minus 130, your brain should go, "What is going on there?" and bet the other side. 
Whereas a novice tennis better might go, oh, wow, I can get Nadal at such a cheap price. I'm going to bet in right now. That's absolutely the, not only is that wrong, that's the exact opposite thing that you should do. So if you do just that, if you stay out of tennis completely, except for dipping in to bet lower ranked favorites, you will win money. I promise you. Winning strategy, okay? I prefer to think of that as my base game. That's my winning foundation for tennis handicapping. And then I build out from there using price analysis and tennis knowledge and my understanding of the game, okay? Let's look at another match from today that I bet on. It's actually one I've got on here on my second TV that I've been sort of glancing at while recording this. Australian player Alex D. Manure, he's playing against another guy, Tommy Paul, also an American. And again, I bet against the American here. Sorry, I guess I just wasn't feeling patriotic this week in Italy. Like Brooksby and Goffin, these guys are somewhat closely ranked, okay? Demoner is ranked number 22. Tommy Paul is ranked number 34. They are both more comfortable on hard court, so they're not natural clay players. They're both kind of close in rank. So you got kind of a predictable price from the book. Demoner is minus 150. Tommy Paul is plus 115. And remember, the book is, is kind of handcuffed by these rankings, too. If this is a competitive match that could go either way, which is exactly what it looks like based on their backgrounds and their rankings, you can't make either guy too big of a dog or the book could potentially have liability. So it's priced pretty tightly. This is a good price. Demonor is the rightful favorite because he's a little bit higher ranked and you just kind of let people go from there. But looking at these guys' clay records, looking at their form, looking at their record on court style, tells you everything you need to know. Demonor hasn't had a winning clay season in years, but he is out to a very respectable 7-3 start on clay this year. He's playing well even after the change from hardcourt. He has good form. Tommy Paul, on the other hand, two wins and three losses on clay this year. And one of the wins was a tight match in the third set and the other guy retired. Basically, he forfeited, probably because of an injury. So, really, he's only got the one win and he was a little bit lucky to get the other one. Yes, these guys are both roughly equally good players. And yes, the sportsbook has priced this well. But looking at form on clay right now, Alex DeMenor is the clear and obvious choice. I bet him at 150 and I actually made a more advanced bet on top of that. Uh, getting money down on him for the game spread at two and a half at minus 105, which is a little bit more complicated. We're probably not going to cover uh, tennis exotics in this episode, but basically there's all kinds of weird tennis bets you can make. And I bet not only that he would win, but that he would win by at least a certain amount of games. It's the tennis equivalent of a point spread, uh, which he did do. He won seven, five, six, four. So he won uh, plus four games. Really weird second set that I've had on here where uh, an abnormally large number of breaks for a men's match. Uh, There's like four breaks at the beginning of the second set. Super weird, but whatever. Money line win, game spread win, bang, bang. Just making money all day over here. Anyway, that's that's another match. That's another look at how I would use form and court style to identify value. Because in that case, the higher ranked player was the favorite. So I I couldn't necessarily use a weird line to identify something I should look into. Uh, It was properly priced by the book. They did a good job. 
I, I just I looked into the background of the players and I was able to identify one player probably had a clay edge over the other. And so I bet him at a reasonable price. I got an even better price by betting an exotic. And that's where we're at. Okay, so you understand now my process and how to identify winners. Uh, you mix in some some good form matches, some favorite parlays maybe, and you've got the makings of a full card. And I know I've talked mostly about the men's game so far. Pretty much everything in this episode applies to women's tennis as well with one important addition that I'll get to in a little bit. The next thing I want to talk about is live tennis betting. This is another place where the sports book absolutely cleans up because people do not understand live tennis odds at all, okay? Let's zoom out here and talk about the sport tennis for a second because it's critical to understand this one mechanic of tennis for live betting in particular. In tennis, you serve and then the other player serves. You serve and then the other player serves. You serve and then the other player serves. And on and on and on until somebody wins, right? And the meta expectation in tennis is that you win your serve. You are expected to win your serve, especially in the men's game, where serves are often well over 100 miles an hour. There is a massive advantage to being the person, being the server, who gets to put the ball in play. As the server, you get to act, and your opponent has to react. So you should be in control of most points Because the returner is sort of always back on their heels and defending what you're doing. He's just trying to hold on, right? That's most points most of the time. You're expected to win your serve. But sometimes in tennis, a player will win a game despite being the returner and not the server. This is called breaking serve, and it's a critical part of winning a set. It's also probably a term you're familiar with because it's been co-opted by other sports. Uh, in, in a high-scoring football game, you might you might hear uh, you you might hear like a defense being referred to as breaking serve. Like, oh, they actually made a stop for once. Look at that. Uh, so, there, in a way, a lot of these tennis terms get co-opted by other sports. But really, breaking service is important in tennis because it's it's your fastest, shortest, clearest way to winning a set, right? If there's no break, a set will eventually go to a tie break. If you win a game and I win a game and you win a game and I win a game and you win a game and I win a game and on and on and on, eventually it's six to six and that's when you play a tie break, which is a series of individual points and you have to win by two and it's first to seven. But a break completely changes the match. Whereas before, it was you won a game, then I won a game, and you won a game, and I won a game, and you won a game, and I won a game, and now it's 6-6 and we play a tiebreaker. A break changes that completely. It changes how it, the match feels. It changes the momentum. It changes what the scoreboard looks at like as well. It, it's a huge difference, okay? Instead of being tied 1-1 going to a third game, now it's 2-0 and I'm expected to win again. Instead of being 2-1 going back to your serve, it's now 3-0 going back to your serve. And that's where the live tennis people get into trouble. That's where the problems are, right? The score sounds bad when it's 3-0. He's getting his ass kicked. It's 3-0. But he's really not. It's not a soccer match. You're really only down one break. 
and all you need is to get one break back and you're on serve. The game is back headed toward that tie break, headed toward a tied set. Live tennis odds get so screwy because a match score can look completely out of hand after a break, but it's actually just a few points away from being back in control. One example I wrote down here a few days ago when I was doing some early prep for this podcast episode, I was watching a match between the top British player, Cameron Norrie, and an American named John Isner. Norrie was a small favorite before the match began. It was like minus, maybe minus 145, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, he won the first set 6-4. to four. The second set went to a tiebreaker. Now, let me spell out the stakes here in case you are totally new to tennis. If Nori wins this tiebreaker, that's the end of the match. He'll have won two sets, and that's enough to win in non-major men's tournaments. However, if John Isner wins the tiebreak, the match will be tied and go to a third winner-take-all set. And like I said earlier, a tiebreaker is first to seven points, And of course, you have to win by two. So that dramatically changes how the match could swing. It could either be game over, everything's over, Cameron Norrie has won, or it could be tied one set to one set and the match is completely up for grabs. That is as dramatic a swing as you could possibly have. At the start of the tiebreak, Cameron Norrie was minus 700 on the live money line. And again, he opened it like minus 140. So he had become a huge favorite. Two hours earlier, he was a modest price, and now you're laying $7 to bet him. Three points into the tiebreak, he had gone up to minus 900. And five minutes after that, John Isner had won the tiebreak, and the live odds were all the way back to a pick'em. Nori was minus 115, and John Isner was minus 110. That's how fast tennis can swing. The prices are dramatic, and there are wild, wild swings, okay? There's two things to remember. With live odds, it is very dangerous to parachute in and try to ride players who are winning. In the case of Cameron Nori, he did eventually win that game. So if you came in and you bet on the minus 900... You were safe that time. You might be able to pick winners correctly 80% of the time in matches like this, okay? But at prices at like minus 900, 80% winners actually still makes you a net loser because you are laying so much money. The other thing to remember with tennis is that the game, as I'm kind of alluding to in this conversation, the game is never as out of hand as it looks, if you see a set where one player is up 5-2, to two, that might look like they're about to win. And that winning player is right on the cusp of seizing the set. But depending on who's serving, the reality is that the losing player may only be down one break. Even though they're down 5-2, to two, they're just a few points away from getting the match back on serve despite whatever that huge price says. And tennis is such a momentum sport that oftentimes once you get that break that you need, the momentum carries you all the way back to tying the game toward winning the game because collapses and just mental strength and mental collapse is such a huge part of the the sport. 
As I pointed out earlier, though, there's always a yang, right? So if if there is a danger in betting these overpriced uh, live odds, if there is a massive sportsbook profit line for people trying to bet these live odds, there's always a way to sort of figure out how to turn that to your advantage. And in this scenario, if the favorites are overjuiced, that means there's inherent value on the underdog. That's sports betting 101. That is the best way to bet on live tennis. You want to back dogs that aren't nearly out of the match as much as the score might make it look like they are. So in that 5-2 to two example, you should be betting on that, that player that's down 5-2 to two and looks like they're about to get eliminated. And guess what? A lot of times, you're going to be wrong. That player is going to get eliminated. And you will have flushed 20 bucks down the toilet in 5 minutes or less. Okay? But just like picking 80% winners on the other side isn't enough to make a profit, on the dog side, being right 25 or 30% of the time is probably enough to make profit because of how big the dog odds are. That's the yang. That's the spin. That's the other side. If you are wise enough to bet the dog when it looks like they're about to lose... If you have the fortitude to do that, the the courage to potentially lose money on a side like this, you can end up with some really nice spots. This brings me to one of my final tricks. Women's tennis and third sets. Always, always, always bet dogs in women's tennis third sets, okay? The serves in women's tennis are not as fast and aggressive as they are in men's tennis, which makes service breaks a little bit more common. This is especially true in third sets where WTA players are wearing down and they just don't have control over a service game that they would have had two hours earlier in the first set. A lot of times in women's matches, by the time you get to that third set, they're basically just trying to get the ball in play and volley. And when you're betting on a volley... There is no service advantage. It's just whoever's, you know, mentally tougher and has a little bit more control of their volley shots. The rules of live tennis still ring true here. Players who go up a break are given huge odds in women's tennis in the third set. You can regularly buy both sides of a random women's game in the third set at plus 250 or plus 350 if you're just patient and unattached to a particular outcome. If the tennis, it's, it's like the tennis equivalent of buying the dip on the stock market. Buy a loser at a good price, and even if you only connect on 40% of your picks, you're going to land in the profit because you're buying low, and you know those breaks are coming. And if you are attached to a particular outcome, meaning you bet on a women's player pre-flop and that match has now gone to the third set, you should hedge in nearly every circumstance. The number of times I have seen a women's match have some crazy, circuitous third set path is too high to count. A player going up 5-0, to zero, almost certainly about to win, only to let the other player then win seven straight games and win the third set 7-5. to five. I see it all the time. Maybe not that exact 7-5 to five scenario, but third set collapses are commonplace. So you have to bet the other side. 
And you have to hedge out of these games if you have a pre-flop position. I'm telling you, I see it all the time. Protect yourself in the third set. Always hedge out when the other side has good odds. Uh, Let's give an example here just to make it really clear what I'm talking about when I'm talking about hedging out of a pre-flop position. Let's say you bet $200 on Madison Keys as a minus 200 favorite. I'm making the math real clean here. $200 at minus 200 means you're going to win $100. Your profit margin, like I said, $100. If she's up three games to one in the third set, her opponent's live odds might go to plus 550. Much better than they were at the beginning of the game before anybody played uh, when her opponent was probably plus 150. Now you're getting her live at plus 550. So you can bet $37 to cover your outlay, your $200 that you put up originally, and you can still end up with a nice $63 net profit if Madison Keys wins. It's not ideal, it's not great, but it's better than ending up eating the full $200 if Madison Keys blows the lead. And I cannot emphasize this enough, if you are watching women's tennis in the third set, be prepared for blown leads. My favorite thing to do is just parachute in on a random women's game, wait for a break, bet the dog, wait for them to break back and take the lead, bet the other dog, and just every time the odds flip, bet the dog. And the odds will get progressively greater and progressively greater and you, you know you're getting plus 350 and then you're getting plus 450 and then you're getting plus 650 and then you're getting plus 1150 and you just you just own both sides own both sides at greater and greater payouts it is the easiest way to bet tennis and make a lot of money really fast um now sometimes you're going to bet in and it's the odds are never going to flip and you're just going to be holding a losing ticket i promise you that will happen just as often as the other thing happens and you will make way more money than you lose betting both sides of women's tennis in the third set. The last thing here that I want to mention is how to bet on big favorites. Personally, I don't necessarily mind the risk profile of betting $600 on a big favorite. I feel very comfortable about, but there are two potential differences here between me and you. And the first is that I know exactly what to look for when checking out a big favorite. How consistent are they at beating lesser competition? Do they play to their own standard or do they play down? How much upset potential does the other guy have? What are the forms of those players like? Uh, Is this guy a huge favorite because he's a big public marketplace favorite? Or is he really just that likely to bounce this guy? The consistency thing is particularly important in the women's game where sub-100 ranked players go on crazy runs all the time, even in major tournaments. So all things to think about, right? The second difference is actually more important. My, my, the fact that I know a lot about tennis, as I said toward the beginning of this episode, it's not actually that important in betting in tennis. It, I mean, it's great to have all the knowledge. It is not the most important thing. The second thing, which is much more important, is my bankroll. I have tens of thousands of dollars in my primary bankroll. So if I lose $600 on a bet, I mean, I don't want to lose $600, but it's not going to destroy me, right? It's, you know, it's a small, small, small percentage of my bankroll. If you lose $600 on a bet, that might be your entire bankroll. And, you know, if I, I don't, I don't want to sound like an elitist here. If you've got thousands and thousands of dollars in a bankroll, by all means, throw $400 at a French Open game. I Knock yourself out. But what you shouldn't do is, you know, bet $325 of your $400 bankroll at BetMGM. That's not very smart. You are putting yourself in a terrible position. 
Uh, even if you're betting on Nadal at the French Open and you're like, I'm sure he's going to win. There's two possible scenarios. One, he loses and you're out of the money. Two, he wins, but now you have positively reinforced your bad betting behavior and I promise you, you're going to do it again. I promise you, you will bet $325 of your $400 bankroll more and more and more often and eventually you will lose and you'll be wiped out. So don't do that. If you want to take two years and build a huge bankroll, either you know by just never cashing out or by taking $100 out of every paycheck and setting it aside to create this big bankroll, um, that's a great way to do it. Set yourself up a big bankroll and then maybe you're a little bit more confident betting four or $500 on a tennis match. But until then, I would be very careful about doing that kind of stuff, okay? The safer way to bet on big favorites is a money line parlay. And it's the exact same sort of thing I talk about with college basketball. Go grab the four players that you've researched, you like, they're, they're minus 500, they're minus 800. You're like, I'm really confident that these guys are going to win. You throw them together, you get them in a parlay, you get the odds to something more manageable like minus 130. And that is just a much smarter ticket. You, you have a payoff that is worth investing in. It's not a 10-leg parlay. It's not a 14-leg parlay. It's a four-leg parlay. It's a lot safer. And that is something that you could probably do once a week, maybe twice a week, throw in men's and women's players into the same parlay if you like them, if you like the profile, if you feel like it's a safe bet. And that's a way you can augment your tennis card with some extra plays that you can feel good about. And that's kind of it. That's my process. Understanding the influences that shape the market, understanding the constraints that affect the sportsbook pricing so that I can turn them to my advantage, looking at form, looking at surfaces, clay, grass, hard court, finding value, making smart live bets based around value, not being afraid to bet on big favorites if I feel the risk is manageable, being creative enough to build trim winning parlays. That's how I bet tennis. And over three years, over the last three years, it is one of my most profitable sports, if not my most profitable sport. I hope this has been helpful. Uh, I, I hope you guys feel that this is something you can recreate in your own shop even if it's you know at a limited expense, at, at lesser unit cost. If you liked it, if you felt it was helpful, we'd really love a subscribe and a review. Let us keep giving you the tools to make positive ROI off your sports book. Give us a kind word on the iTunes store or maybe share the podcast with a friend of yours who also bets. Uh, that's a, huge, a hugely helpful way to uh, grow, the, grow the show as well. Andrew will be back next week and we'll figure out what we're talking about, not just in the short term, but for the length of the summer, I know we've got NFL divisional previews coming eventually. Uh, definitely a thing. College football win totals. You guys know we're really good at those if you're a longtime subscriber. There's also some stuff I'd like to do, uh, some more special stuff, talking about uh, how to use the marketplace to your advantage, which we talked about a little bit in this episode, but it was tennis specific. I want to do a broader one, maybe a little bit of theory crafting. Uh, I want to do another episode with Jason Scott, who's the vice president of trading at BetMGM. So lots of good stuff on the horizon, some surprises in store as well. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it helpful. Thanks for listening to The Lion's Edge, and we'll see you back here next time. 